This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, you have found Forum, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we take papers recently published in our pages or elsewhere and discuss them with leading researchers in the field. Uh, my name is Brady Huggett, and this is Episode 7. But for this episode, we've done something a little different. This is associated with our July focus issue on CRISPR tools and therapies, and we gathered a couple of leading voices in the field to have a conversation. We have Marcus Elsner, Senior Editor at Nature Biotechnology, speaking with David Liu, who's in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Harvard, and he's also a co-founder of Editas Medicines, and Jennifer Doudna in the Molecular and Cell Biology and Chemistry Departments at the University of California, Berkeley, and she's also a co-founder of Caribou Biosciences. And yeah, I, I think that's all you need to know, so let's just get right to it. Here's Marcus Elsner kicking it off. Jennifer, David, thank you very much for being a guest on our podcast. Um, and uh, so we're here to talk about CRISPR and um, genome editing and, and what the current stage of the field is and what the future might bring. And I think my first question is that as hard as it seems uh, to remember, there was a time before we had CRISPR uh, when we had ZFNs, talons, meganucleases. And so what do you think? We, we have learned from, uh, from those days that it's just still relevant. And are those tools, maybe especially for clinical applications, uh, still relevant today? I think start with Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, sure. Well, thank you, Marcus, for, for inviting us. It's great to be here with you and, and with, with David Liu. I would say that the field of genome editing has been around quite a while. I was a student in the 1980s when I remember, you know, people like Peter Durbin who were using oligonucleotides that had chemical modifications that allowed DNA cutting. And that was actually a technology that was used to map the uh, Huntington gene originally. Um, and uh, in Boston, you know, at, at Mass General Hospital, that was something done while I was while I was there. 
And, um, and then since then, as you know, there've been a whole progression of really exciting technologies that you mentioned using in particular engineered proteins to trigger targeted changes to genomes. And what that really did was I think, you know, it, it, it showed the potential for that technology to be really truly transformative and gave a number of labs uh, the ability to engineer genomes and um, ask important questions about the function of genes that couldn't really have been addressed prior to having a, the ability to manipulate DNA in a site-specific way in cells. And I think what, what CRISPR did was it came along at sort of a, an opportune moment when the field was primed for the uh, you know the excitement around genome editing, the potential of a technology that could trigger targeted changes, but it provides something that those earlier tools didn't, which is the the uh, the ease of use and the programmability that just became um, so so um, easy to manipulate that any lab essentially that had basic skills in molecular biology could adopt the CRISPR technology. And that's really what's happened over the last eight years. I think it's been quite quite remarkable to see how this uh, tool has really spread globally. It's enabled all, all sorts of incredible science, and we're now really on the verge of being able to see it applied, I hope, fairly broadly to treat genetic disease and do all sorts of other things. Maybe we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. You want to add to that, David? Yeah, sure. Uh, Marcus, uh, thank you for having us. And uh, I uh, totally agree with and, and uh, actually have a similar history being inspired by some of the early work of, of some bioorganic chemists. Uh, when I was a prospective graduate student uh, visiting Caltech, Peter Durbin actually showed me uh, some exciting data using his polyamides to, as he called it, digitally address DNA. And uh, that, uh, that concept, I think he, he captured the important aspect of the concept of digitally addressing DNA, uh, that is recognizing that if you could specify a sequence to manipulate, uh, that that capability would be very powerful. And uh, uh, as Jennifer eloquently explained, uh, generations of tools uh, successively improved and diversified our ways of doing so. And that's brought us to this uh, new era. Uh, and you know, I think many people may not uh, fully appreciate unless they're in the field that we are now in a new era of human genome editing, where human patients have been edited for the first time, meaning their DNA has been purposefully changed in their cells uh, to treat diseases. And it's a remarkable uh, accomplishment. And it's also uh, uh, a moment for us to make sure we're proceeding in a thoughtful way. Um, do you think those older techniques um, still have a role to play? I mean, of course, there's uh, there, there are companies like uh, Sangamo, uh, Selectus, uh, that uh, that use Talent, CFNs. How do you see the trade-offs between using different technologies, the pros and cons uh, in 2020? I, I definitely think that all of those uh, methods and uh, proteins, uh, both engineered and taken from nature, have their own niche. Uh, and I say that not just because it sounds uh, like a, a discrete way to, to evaluate and compare the different 
approaches people have taken, uh, but really because they each have different properties. So zinc fingers, for example, are small. They tend to be less immunogenic. Uh, tail proteins are larger, but unlike CRISPR, they don't rely on an RNA. And when RNA delivery is challenging, like into some subcellular organelles, uh, RNA delivery is proven to be a challenge. Uh, tails have actually shown, proven to, to find a, a really important niche. Uh, for example, in the mitochondria, uh, researchers have used tailings to uh, destroy targeted copies of mitochondrial DNA. And despite uh, efforts from many labs to use CRISPR in, in mitochondria, uh, those efforts have not really been uh, fruitful yet because of the challenges of RNA delivery. So that's just one example, and I think there are, are many others that highlight the, the value and the unique strengths of each of those approaches. Yeah, I guess I would just add that I think anytime you have technologies that are layered on each other and build build off of what you learn from the use of, of, of individual types of tools, you're going to learn things that help make each of those technologies better, right? So I think that, you know, one of the interesting things that's come out of the comparisons of uh, using talons, zinc finger nucleases, meganucleases, and, and CRISPR is that there's been a very deep appreciation for on versus off targeting and um, what determines that for these different technologies. And I think that, you know, there are, I think, very interesting examples where in some cases, uh, one or the other of these tools turns out to be better for a particular application. So at some level, it's kind of nice to have, you know, a few a few tools in the toolbox if you need to do something and one tool isn't ideal. As David said, you can pull another one out. Mm -hmm. So with the current arsenal, uh, arsenal of uh, CRISPR enzymes that we have, what would be your wish list? Uh, what capabilities do you think are missing uh, that we still need to engineer into those en enzymes? Can I take a stab at that, David? Because I know you, I know you have a lot to say. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> but but I'll I'll tell you my two big ones. My two my two big ones are uh, one is ensuring that uh, that precision is achieved in editing. So not just triggering a change at a targeted place in a in the, in a genome, but triggering a desired change and and ensuring that it happens the same way in every cell. And, um, and so, you know, one of the forefronts right now in the field is figuring out how to get uh, homology directed repair working well, that would be a, I think a very transformative step to get, you know, have the ability to induce cells to integrate a desired sequence, uh, you know, especially if it was uh, possible to integrate very large DNA sequences where you could introduce entire genes or sets of genes into a into a targeted position in a genome uh, would be very powerful. So I think that's one area where there's lots of uh, work still to be done. And the other really big one is delivery and ensuring that whatever tool you're using can be introduced efficiently into cells and not just into cells growing in a laboratory dish, but into, uh, into a patient, into a plant, uh, into, a, you know, into a, an existing organism where you want to achieve editing in a tissue and you want to be able to do it in situ and you want to be able to do it with very high efficiency, very low toxicity, 
and the kind of precision that will allow a, you know, a, a disease-causing mutation to be corrected or a trait to be introduced with uh, very high efficiency. So I think for me, those are the two big ones that I, um, are on the table. I, I agree with uh, everything Jennifer just said, and, and maybe I'll, I'll slightly expand on, on one of them and, and give a different twist on another, which is, I think, determining the relationship between cell states and cell types and genome editing outcomes is a great uh, frontier for both genome editing people, biologists, doctors, agriculturalists. And uh, so understanding that complicated relationship, uh, which integrates chemistry, DNA repair, cell biology, and, and many other disciplines, uh, is one really important frontier for the field. And uh, the other I would say, which Jennifer already touched on, is we've seen some really exciting discoveries of CAS-associated, CRISPR-associated transposases uh, that have the capability of inserting large pieces of DNA in a programmable manner. And I think uh, we're all holding our breath to hope that those transposases can uh, work in mammalian cells because introducing putatively therapeutic genes at tar into targeted positions in mammalian cells could be a, a really uh, important advance for gene therapy. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the uh, talented groups of Sam Sternberg, Fungeon, and others <laughs> will will have success in, in transitioning those technologies into mammalian cells. How about recombinases? I remember that paper from uh, from the Buchholz group in in uh, in Germany a while ago, where they designed recombinases to to remove HIV proviruses from from the human genome. Do you think this kind of approaches uh, could yield could yield uh, recombinases that would be useful for other diseases to replace sequences without generating double-stranded breaks? Or even This was a quest uh, of ours for years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did actually publish one paper on uh, CRISPR recombinase, mm -hmm. CRISPR recombinase, uh, but it has a number of caveats. I mean, I, I think as background, as your question implies, a recombinase that would be a hypothetical, fully programmable recombinase would be, in some respects, an ultimate genome editing agent because recombinases can do straight-up replacement of arbitrary segments of DNA for arbitrary other segments of DNA. Mm -hmm. The challenge is, there, among many other challenges, uh, but a key challenge is that there isn't a universal recombinase catalytic domain that has proven to be sort of modular and to not bring its own sequence requirements. So. We used one that uh, the late uh, Carlos Barbas uh, engineered called Gin Beta, and we integrated it into Cas9, and we called this Rec Cas9. And it was uh, programmable to some extent, but it still inherited the, you know, fairly strong sequence requirements of the Gin Beta uh, catalytic units, uh, and it also didn't have very high activity. While its activity was detectable in, in human cells, it was pretty weak. So it remains kind of an aspiration, and I, and I hope the field actually aspires to, to finish the job. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's no hope of finding something like that in, in nature. Uh, never know. Well, you never know. <laughs> I, I would I never bet against nature. <laughs> 
Maybe staying with the tools that we have, uh, one concern about genome editing that always comes up is uh, the potential for off-targeting of, of the CRISPR enzymes. And over the years, there has been a lot of development of high-fidelity variants. Do you feel that problem with the variants that we have has large, largely been solved, or is, is there still um, some way to go? Um, well, I could take a stab at that. I mean, I think I think that, um, as you said, there's been a lot of really nice engineering in the field to come up with variants of the Cas proteins that have intrinsically higher fidelity of DNA recognition and cutting, um, which is which has been great. I think one of the things that labs who have tried to adopt those many of those variants have found is that they're often just less active as well as as genome editors. So I think in the end, um, what one of the things cer certainly those those variants have a role to play for sure. But I think also it's been the case that as people have gotten a really uh, good handle on just how much editing is, you know, editor is needed to get a desired amount of editing, controlling the lifetime of the editor in the cell so it doesn't hang around for weeks and weeks, but, you know, goes in, does its job, and then gets the heck out of there. Yeah, that's been important. And then I think also working with primary cells has shown that in many cases uh, they behave differently than cancer cells cultured in a lab dish. So all of those things, I think, have converged to show that at least in a number of cases, the fidelity of the existing enzymes, whether they're the natural ones or, or some of these variants, coupled with the using the right protocol and you know primary cells, you can really get very high levels of accuracy of, of editing. And that's been shown by a number of labs, especially when you do uh, you know, whole genome uh, sequencing, looking for off-targets, not just at places where you might predict an off-target, but, but you know, any, anywhere in the, in the genome. And then, you know, as David knows, there's also been you know, just a lot of attention paid to the actual technology of detecting off-targets that's been incredibly valuable. So now I think it's pretty standard in the field to use one or more of the sequencing-based methods, whether it's GuideSeq or CircleSeq, you know, thing, sort of uh, technologies of that type to look for um, off-target editing. And that's, that's also added, a, I think, a level of robustness to the field that it has been important for allowing different experimenters to compare their data across systems to look at, at the accuracy of editing. Yeah, and, and I, I think Jennifer summarized it beautifully. I'll just add that because there are really no discontinuous functions in nature, there's never going to be perfectly specific binding of two molecules. And that's true of every uh, molecule, large or small, that we put into people, into patients. Uh, it will be true of genome editing agents. And therefore, in addition to this deep exploration and Zen-like understanding of specificity that the field is, is moving to, to achieve with the editing agents, uh, I think we just have to be very thoughtful about matching agents with uh, diseases and other applications of genome editing where the, the anticipated level of off-target editing is acceptable for the given application. Obviously, for diseases that are much more grievous than others, the level of, of risk that you might be willing to tolerate is higher. For certain other applications, which can also be very impactful in the world, like agricultural ones, uh, you may care less about uh, mm -hmm. off-target editing. 
so the scope of genome editing is so broad because it is really the scope of DNA that I'm optimistic there will be a, a wide swath of applications that are well matched once we achieve an understanding not only of the editing side, but also of the acceptable risk tolerance on the, on the application side. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One thing that uh, I think in recent years we've seen that we have actually moved substantially beyond just creating double-stranded breaks with first base editing and then uh, prime editing now from your lab, David. When do you think we will see the first clinical applications um, or more general practical applications, uh, maybe outside the clinic as well, of uh, of of those tools. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's been publicly announced by uh, Beam Therapeutics, which is trying to bring uh, base editing to human patients that they hope to uh, be in the clinic by next year. So hopefully, within our, you know, as I like to tell my students, within your PhD lifetime, uh, you will see uh, some of these uh, non-cutting genome editing technologies actually reach patients. I think another thing that going beyond even DNA now um, is uh, the development of RNA editing technologies, either based on, on Cas enzymes or uh, using uh, endogenous ADAR enzymes. Where do you see the utility of those approaches, either practical or in, in, um, in basic research? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an RNA RNAophile from yeah, way back, right? So <laughs> uh -huh. intrinsically, I love the idea of RNA editing. It's great. I think that, you know, the practical reality is that uh, RNA editing for clinical purposes turns out to be challenging because obviously you would have to do it continuously. And that gets into issues of toxicity of the editor um, and, you know, efficiency. And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why RNAi, as, as fantastic a technology as it is, has turned out to be challenging for certain kinds of applications where you need to have a long-term 
effect. I think that where, where RNA editing is really powerful is when you can make a, a transient change to the transcriptome that might have a, a desired effect, whether it's, uh, I don't, I think about it less for, I guess, for clinical applications as for uh, research purposes, particular, you know, being able to understand the role of particular transcripts, um, particular uh, edited versions of, of mm -hmm. transcripts, I think is, is a really, really exciting application of RNA editing. So the more that that comes online as a way to manipulate individual types of RNA, especially if you can um, do things like control splice variants, I think that's going to be really powerful, primarily in the, in the realm of, of research, I would say. I don't know if David disagrees with me on that. No, I, maybe I'll just add that along the lines of uh, applications where transient change in an RNA sequence could result in a permanent change to a cell or an organism, uh, there are a number of differentiation, transdifferentiation, dedifferentiation pathways that are now beginning to be understood, some of which are biomedically relevant, therapeutically relevant that potentially could be perturbed uh, using RNA editing. But uh, the challenges, of course, of, of trying to go after targets where you anticipate needing to continuously dose a complicated macromolecule that probably is going to be immunogenic is certainly one consideration, as Jennifer mentioned. Yeah, I think many of the same concerns um, apply to uh, epigenome editing and gene activation uh, use of Cas9 or, or other tools. Still, even for basic research, I'm always a bit surprised that those tools are not often used. I'm just wondering whether they're basic limitations or that's maybe just a question of time because the questions maybe that can be addressed by those kind of tools are a bit more involved. I, I think the epigenetic tools are used quite a bit in research. CRISPR-A, CRISPR-I screens, for example, where illuminating the relationships between turning genes on and off and phenotypes of interest uh, has really been advanced using using those technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I also continue to, to hold out some hope for some of the reasons I just spoke about that they could also be used, perhaps even in a clinical setting, but it's early for that. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I would just add that I think those, uh, I think one of the reasons you haven't seen those used as widely, Marcus, is because, as you may know, those, uh, those CAS proteins are, are highly engineered and they're, they're quite large and they're just, again, not trivial to, you know, just technically to work with. And I, I, I haven't played with them that much in, in our own lab, but I know this from um, lots and lots of conversations about this with people like Jonathan Weissman and, and you know, his whole crew at UCSF doing this, that this is one of the big challenges. And as beautiful as that work has been, I think a continual um, issue is you know, just how do you manipulate those, those proteins? Are you going to express them off of a virus? Are you going to express them off of an mRNA? Are you going to you know, take the purified protein and introduce it into cells. And any of those methods has, has issues when you're dealing with a big, floppy, multi-domain, uh, you know, engineered protein. So I suspect that, you know, as the technology matures, and as you know, it's a, you know, very, very fast moving field, um, that as David says, you know, we'll increasingly see that kind of, of uh, application 
of, of CRISPR. And I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about the potential for it to have impacts in, in the clinic as well, because I think, like David said, you could imagine opportunities to make targeted and transient change to the epigenome that does end up having a long-term effect on a cell or tissue. So that's, I think, something that is um, in the future for genome editing. And in fact, many of the natural biological changes in cell state or cell fate are thought to occur from transient changes to the epigenome. So yeah. cautiously optimistic that uh, that will continue to be more and more useful as researchers expand their application of these tools. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned delivery quite a few times now, um, and I think this seems to be the elephant in the room, not only for genome editing, but for many potentially powerful uh, approaches. For genome editing, do you see any new approaches that are coming up, any grand new ideas that, that will make delivery easier? Uh, if you have any, you can... David, David's <laughs> looking at me and I'm looking at him. <laughs> Wait, can we show slides in this podcast? <laughs> um, um, it, it's a grand, you know, it has been delivery of macromolecules in therapeutically relevant ways has been a grand challenge of the life sciences for decades, predating CRISPR, predating genome editing, really. You know, ever since we uh, scientists discovered that uh, missing proteins were the cause of metabolic disease, which is 100 plus years ago, researchers have aspired, doctors have aspired to figure out how to get missing enzymes, missing proteins into people. And uh, while we can do that uh, more easily if they're extracellular, if they're intracellular, it's still a humbling problem that uh, we can know exactly what macromolecule is missing in a patient, in a, in a patient's cells and not be able to get that macromolecule in there uh, in some cases. Now, there, of course, there has been some progress, but the fact that the progress and the clinically approved forms of delivering uh, genes, for example, in vivo are limited thus far. If you count in vivo FDA-approved gene delivery vehicles, it's AAV, and I think that's it. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a humbling realization that highlights just how challenging this problem is and, and, and also just how important the problem is. One of the legacies I, I, I hope genome editing will leave behind uh, is, is that it will inspire uh, generations of young, talented, creative scientists to go after delivery problems because now more than ever before, we have even more important, even more urgent delivery problems we'd like to solve with the advent of these editing agents that bring so much promise uh, in, in a test tube and in the laboratory and uh, fully realizing that promise in humans would, of course, be transformative. So one, one question I ask myself a lot, and I'd love to know, you know, David, if you're, you, you have thoughts about this. Am I allowed to ask a question, Marcus? Yes. <laughs> in response to your question. But, you know, the question I ask myself a lot is, um, would we make more progress on delivery if we had a way to focus on it, like if you had a, you know, and I know there are a few labs that kind of focus on delivery, but what if you had a whole, I don't know, a whole institute that was um, focused on delivery or a company that was focused on delivery? And, and, and maybe since we're talking about CRISPR, you know, focused in particular on how to deliver genome editing molecules, 
Would that be uh, an effective uh, strategy to accelerate the pace of discovery, or would it, would it frankly not, because a lot of the discovery about delivery technologies comes about sort of driven by individual applications where you need to get into a certain cell type, and so you're going to target your, you know, your technology development to that. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, David? No, I was I was hoping you were saying that you were going to start such an institute. You want to join <laughs> me? I was, then I was going to I was going to follow up with a few emails. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's uh, you know I, yeah. I think it highlights that uh, some out of the box approaches would be uh, very useful now, uh, and to some extent, I think we're trapped in a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy that a prophecy of limitation, where if we are choosing diseases largely on the basis of their ability to be addressed using known delivery modalities, like ex vivo electroporation of RNA into hematopoietic stem cells followed by transplant, or AAV uh, to target organs that are known to have good transduction efficiencies with AAVs of known tropisms, you know, then, then it creates uh, less of a sense of urgency that discovering truly different and potentially transformative uh, new kinds of delivery modalities is really what you want to do. And, you know, there is a temptation, and we, we certainly feel it in, in our lab, that because uh, the editing agents are, are getting so capable and because there's so much to do with uh, treating genetic disease, why don't, why don't you just go after the low-hanging fruit where you already have a sense of how delivery is going to be done? But I think to, to make long-term progress at broadening the scope of what genome editing can really do uh, will require getting out of the usual four or five delivery modalities and trying something tr truly different. And uh, that's where I think an institute like Jennifer just proposed <laughs> could be really useful. I'll come to the opening symposium. Marcus, you're going to fund it, I thought. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> Okay, the other, uh, I think for genome editing, um, the, the other elephant in the room is immunogenicity. So do you think that will prove a real problem in the clinic? And if so, do you think we can engineer our, uh, our way around, around immunogenicity problems? Well, I mean, I guess the short answer is uh, no, because if we did, we probably would be doing something else, um, <laughs> I guess. But, uh, but no, I think, I think it's a, it is a really important point. It's, you know, if you're going to introduce a foreign protein into cells, uh, not surprisingly, you know, it, it's going to trigger an immune response. And so how do we deal with that? Not to, not to mention that uh, there's also evidence that for at least some of these bacterial CRISPR-Cas proteins, there could be pre-existing uh, immunity because of exposure to those pathogenic bacteria that, you know, many people have had. So, you know, I think that a there's a couple of things that, that, that are interesting here. One is that, um, you know, genome editing is, is a therapy is, as a, as a treatment is, is different than a lot of other therapies, like let's say using antibodies, because in principle, you'd only have to deliver it once or maybe just a very few number, low number of times. So um, if you had really high efficiency of editing, you could imagine, you know, it's a one and done uh, kind of treatment. And so even if there, it does trigger an immune response, you're out of there and it doesn't 
doesn't matter. But I guess the other thing to think about is that, the, you know, nature's come up with lots of different CRISPR-Cas proteins. Many of them come from non-pathogenic bacteria. And also they're really diverse, right? Because that's, you know, this is a, a natural immune system that has to evolve very quickly to avoid being, being neutralized by bacteriophage. And so there's a lot of diversity that exists in nature. And then of course, very clever people, some of whom are on this podcast are, you know, able to come up with, with ways to create uh, new variants that nature hasn't found, but also might be capable of avoiding uh, triggering a, a robust immune response. So I think all of those things make me think that although this is absolutely something to pay attention to, it's probably not going to be a insurmountable problem. Yeah, totally agree. Well said. <laughs> I mean, the, this is why changing the, the genome is especially exciting compared to uh, going after RNA or protein uh, because of the prospect that a one-time change can affect a permanent benefit to the patient. And, uh, of course, transient immunosuppression is commonly used in many treatments already, uh, so it won't be the first time that one might imagine uh, suppressing the immune system for a period of time. Uh, and, you know, at least based on some of the early uh, in vivo studies that have come out already, that period of, of transient immunosuppression, if necessary, may not even be that long. It may be on the order of days. So I agree with Jennifer that it doesn't appear to be a showstopper with respect to uh, translating uh, genome editing into the clinic. I have one final question, um, and then uh, you're off the hook. Um, when we think about genetic diseases, um, uh, for quite a lot of those diseases, uh, there are many mutations that are found in different patients that can cause similar identical diseases. In principle, uh, it should be, especially with CRISPR, be easy to um, design individualized therapies. Do you think we will see that, especially with the uh, with the current regulations that that we have, or are there also scientific problems uh, to generating individualized therapies? I think if the the initial uh, wave of genome editing therapeutics prove to be safe and efficacious, it will open the door to uh, streamlining some of the safety and regulatory processes that have to be be met, and, and some of those, uh, people imagine, might include uh, small changes in a guide RNA to accommodate somebody's specific mutation, for example. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, such a, a different variant, if it's a guide RNA-based therapeutic, wouldn't have to go through a new set of some regulatory safety experiments, but Uh, perhaps they could be streamlined. And, and you know, I, I've come to appreciate that FDA is actually really working hard to try to strike an optimal balance between getting these therapies to patients and, and ensuring that they have a, a safety margin that doesn't put the patients at unnecessary risk, recognizing that all new therapeutics come with some risk. Uh, so I think FDA is actually, in, in many ways, showing a lot of leadership to work with uh, researchers and with companies to come up with creative ways to do exactly what you just proposed, how to quickly spread the benefit of a successful genome editing platform to as many patients as possible without unnecessarily elevating their risk. 
Yeah, I would just add to that two things. One is that clearly the power of a programmable genome editing technology is exactly what you said, Marcus, right? It's, you know, the the potential to tailor it to a person's genome so that you can correct a disease-causing mutation in the context of, you know, individual uh, sequence variations. So I think that's very exciting and something that, you know, is, is uh, really offers the, you know, the, the whole field, the, the potential to, to be, um, you know, to bring the whole idea of personalized medicine into reality. But what goes along with that, too, in addition to what David said, which I, I fully agree with on the regulatory side, is, um, is um, thinking about affordability. How do we make sure that, you know, if you're going to have a tailored uh, therapy that sounds great, but if it costs $2 million a person, it's not very useful. And so I think that, you know, increasingly what I spend time thinking about is how do we continue to advance the technology always thinking about, you know, how do we do it in a way that will uh, lower cost and make it more accessible to people, not less. And it's a tall order, but I think it's something really, really important to be thinking about given the pace of the field and, and where things are today. So David, Jennifer, can thank, can't thank you enough for uh, offering your time uh, uh, for this podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you both. It was a pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you both. Okay, that's the end of the roundtable. Thank you to the guests. Thank you, Marcus, for hosting. That's the end of Episode 7. Again, this is associated with our July focus issue on CRISPR tools and therapies. That issue is out now. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, or First Rounders, just search Nature Biotechnology Inform or Nature Biotechnology and First Rounders in whatever app you use, and you'll find them. If you'd like to discuss this podcast, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. That's it. Until the next one, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.